If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 5 to 22. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 22. If you can choose your translation, um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and we're also going to have it on the screen behind me. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 22. This is the reading of God's word. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us before we jump into this. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, We are currently in a year-long series at our church uh, called Childlike Wonder, where we're revisiting a lot of familiar stories in the Bible with a posture of curiosity and wonder. And today we come to this very famous story of Noah's Ark. Okay, and this story spans four chapters in the book of Genesis, but we're just gonna look at this section right here in Genesis chapter six. Um, Noah's Ark is probably up there as not only one of the most well-known stories in all of scripture, but one of the most most well-known stories of all time. Okay, it's a story Uh, that even if you have never been in church or you don't consider yourself a Christian, you probably know to some extent. Uh, It's been reimagined in a lot of mainstream movies and a lot of mainstream media out there. Uh, It's a story that you will find in every single children's Sunday school curriculum out there. 
which is very ironic because this is absolutely not a kid's story. The story of Noah's Ark is actually one of the most terrifying stories in the entire Bible. It's a story about how God basically drowns the entire Earth's population with the exception of one family. It's a very dark story. And, and, and you have to keep in mind, this is on page six of the Bible. So we're only six chapters in, and God's like, I've already had enough. I'm going to wipe them out, right? It's over. And, and, and I think we've tried to make this story more palatable uh, to the modern listener. We've tried to make this story more palatable for children. So we've created like cheesy songs, like the Lord told Noah there's going to be a floody, floody. Like we add like the Y at the end. That's actually like straight out of a horror movie, okay? It's very scary if you think about it. And so you have to start by naming the elephant in the room. This is a very unsettling story that raises a lot of questions about the nature of God, about the existence of evil in the world and the reality of divine judgment. And in 2023, especially in a city like LA, we do not like the idea of judgment, especially the judgment of God. Maybe for some of us, like we grew up in churches that were all about fire and brimstone, and so even the word judgment may be taboo for you. It might be triggering for some. In fact, this is the story many people tell me is the very reason they can't believe in God because they say, Jason, I, like, you can't tell me that to believe in a God who would condone violence, let alone commit violence. And honestly, like if I'm, if I'm being really honest, I don't blame them for thinking that, right? And if this story doesn't trouble you, I don't know if we're reading the same story. We just read that God regretted making human beings and said, I'm gonna destroy them and the entire earth. That's pretty wild. Like there are days, right, as a parent, when my wife and I, I know we're both thinking the same thing. We look at our kids and we're like, Life would be so much easier without them, okay? Okay, but, okay, oh, whoa, whoa, judgment, okay? All right, once you're a parent, you'll understand, okay? That being said, we've never tried to blot them out of the earth, okay? Like, we've never had that thought, okay? I, can, I mean, I can't speak for my wife, but I, I have never wanted to get rid of them. And yet, on the surface, when you read this story, that's what it sounds like God is doing. When he says, I've regretted making them, oh, I'm gonna hit the reset button now. And I know sometimes as Christians, we don't wanna deal with difficult texts like this, but I'm gonna encourage us to really use this as an opportunity to stretch our understanding of God. One of our core values as a church is to embrace uncertainty and doubt, to not be afraid to wrestle with the Bible because often it's in the wrestling that we grow and mature and discover new truths about who God is. And more often than not, you will realize that when it comes to scripture, there's usually more, that, more than meets the eye, okay? So a couple things uh, before we jump into this. As you can probably imagine, there are a lot of different interpretations of this story. Scholars have tried to make sense of this for centuries. They've debated the meaning of this. Like, did the flood even happen? If it did happen, was it a global flood or just a local flood? You know, if it did happen, how did Noah actually get all the animals onto the ark? Did he have a special way of communicating with insects and birds? Um, you know, and once he got them in the ark, why did they not just, why did the animals not just kill the animals and kill all the people? Great questions, 
okay? And obviously, I can't get to all the questions today, but, but here's what I will say. There is good reason to believe that the story of the flood is at least to some extent rooted in history. There are actually a lot of different flood stories circulating in the ancient world. This isn't the only one, and many biblical scholars believe that all these stories were potentially triggered by an actual historical flood uh, that happened in southern Mesopotamia sometime around 2900 BC, right? And when you go through and read all of these ancient stories, you realize that what all of these ancient stories have in common is that none of them were trying to explain the flood historically or scientifically. They were all trying to make sense of the flood theologically because they believed that the flood said something about the nature of the God or the gods they worshiped. And so more than anything, I want to spend our time looking at this story the way it was intended for its original audience, not as an account of what really happened that day or give me an accurate representation of what happened, but as a story about the nature and character of God. And we're going to see a few things. First, we're going to see that God is a God who must deal with evil. He must. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly where evil came from. It doesn't tell us why God allows evil, which is very frustrating, I know, for a lot of us. But it does make it very clear that when evil is present, God must deal with it. It's not in his nature to be apathetic or indifferent. God can't ignore evil. He has to do something about it. And by evil, we're not talking about people who just slightly missing the mark. If you look at how verse five opens, it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every, only, all. This is an evil that permeated every inch of creation, and this is reiterated throughout this text. In verse 11, we read, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. There's that word again, all. Wickedness, corruption, violence over and over and over again to make this point. There is not one ounce of good left in this world. Now let me ask you a question. Who comes to mind for you when you think about examples of people whose every inclination is evil all the time? Only evil all the time. My guess is you probably think about the Hitlers, the Kim Jong-uns, the child molesters, the sociopaths, the serial killers. Imagine you look out into the world and those are the only people you see. And you said, I'm just gonna let them do what they do. What kind of monster would God be if he did that? And what hope do you and I have living in this world if we follow a God who is even capable of ignoring evil and injustice and wickedness. All throughout the Bible, what the Israelites understood is that the God they worshiped is a God who has to act in the face of evil. In Psalm 37, King David is saying this prayer and he says, don't fret because of evildoers and their wicked schemes because those who are evil are gonna be destroyed. 
Now begs the question, many of you might be asking, well, why does God allow the Hitlers to exist to begin with? Why didn't God just zap Hitler off the earth before he murdered all those millions of people? In fact, why doesn't, right, why doesn't God go around right now and get rid of anyone even thinking about committing a mass shooting? While he's at it, why doesn't God get rid of all the racists, all the corrupt politicians, all the sex traffickers? Why doesn't he just get rid of all the bad guys? While he's at it, why does he get rid of the guy who flipped me off on the way to church today? The world would be so much better without them. And when you take this intellectual reasoning down the rabbit hole, what you realize is that most of us actually don't have an issue with divine judgment as long as it's reserved for the people we believe are the bad guys. Right? As long as it's the Hitlers and as long as the people we think are bad, God, smite them. Do what you will. And in this paradigm where you and I are the judge and jury, where you and I are God, I guarantee you, you and I are never the bad guys. I think why many of us struggle with this story and often walk away from it thinking God wronged humanity, it's usually because we have minimized our view of sin. We have minimized humanity's sin. We have eliminated the possibility that humanity as a whole, which includes us, could actually ever become that bad. And yet we read, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now here's a very interesting nuance that's difficult to see unless you read this text in the original Hebrew. In verse 12 it says, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. Now the word corrupt there is a Hebrew word, shaha. Okay, shaha. Well, in verse 13, when God says, I am surely going to destroy both them, humanity and the earth, the word destroy there is also the same Hebrew word, shaha. Confusing. I thought the earth was already shaha. Why does God need to shaha something that's already shaha? Okay, you, you follow me, right? Why would he need to destroy that which is already destroyed? And what this is saying is exactly what we talked about last week with the curse of Genesis 3. God is not necessarily destroying the earth as much as he is destroying humanity's destruction of the earth. He's actually bringing to an end to that which human beings have already done to themselves. God is simply handing humans over to the thing they've already begun. Put another way, as much as this is an act of divine judgment, it's also an act of divine mercy. You know, in movies, sometimes there's those scenes where the person is dying and they're clearly suffering and it's just like blood is squirting out and the protagonist comes over, grabs the sword and thrusts it into their heart. The person is dead for all intents and purposes. And what the person with the, with the sword thrusting it into their heart is doing is simply accelerating the thing that, the per, that has already happened to this person. The story of the flood is a picture of divine judgment, yes, but also a picture of God taking merciful action to put an end to the pain of humanity's ever-increasing evil. Could God just have let it all play out? Absolutely. But he's a God who must deal with evil. Okay, that's the first point. 
I can tell by your faces that's not very comforting, okay? God must deal with evil. Okay, second point. I think the more profound point is that God is a God who grieves the consequences of evil. God isn't just a God who has to deal with evil. God is a God who grieves the consequences of evil. In verse six, we read, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Some translations say it grieved his heart. It broke the heart of God to see his children and the beautiful world he created be completely corrupted. I think a lot of people read this flood story and we, we, we see this image of a God of vengeance. This God who wants to pay humanity back for their wrongdoings. This God who's frustrated, who's angry, who's fed up and, and feels the need to lash out on his people. And yet that's not what we read. The first thing we read is that God's heart was grieved. Meaning it's clear that God takes zero pleasure in doing what he knows he has to do. Every parent who's ever had to discipline their children understands this, right? I say this to my kids all the time when I'm disciplining them. This hurts me more than it hurts you. And they're like, no, it doesn't. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. I'm like, yes, it does. It does. And I really want us to get this that our sin affects God. Evil and injustice affects God on a deep emotional level. We think of God as being this all-powerful being who has no emotions, right? Who never feels sad. Well, he's God. Oh, he doesn't feel anything, right? We, we paint God as this emotionless being, right? To, to show any kind of sadness would be weakness, but it's clear from the opening pages of Scripture that God weeps. Even if you don't know the Bible, most people know the shortest verse in the Bible. I think it's one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. The creator of the universe weeps. In no other ancient story do you see a God weep when humans suffer. Only in the Bible do we get a picture of a God whose heart is so tied to ours that when something goes wrong in our lives, he feels pain. The other day, I went and picked up my son, who's five, from school, and he was sitting at a bench by himself. And, you know, you could tell that he had been crying, but, you know, because he knew I was coming, quickly wiped away his tears. He was already developing, like, pride, and he's five. And he's sitting there, and, you know, I'm like, what's wrong? Like, are you okay? He's like, I'm fine. Nothing's wrong. So, of course, I go and ask his older sister what happened. And she's like, oh, one of the other kids in his class were being mean to him. All right, so I knew this, right? Of course, he wouldn't tell me about it. I couldn't sleep that night, right? The next morning comes around. He's clearly forgotten about whatever incident made him sad. He's forgotten about it. But I go to school that day with a mission, Okay. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, or I, you know, they all know I'm a pastor, so, you know, like, um, but right when we got there, I said to my daughter, point him out to me, you know, and I'm like, and she's like, is that kid over there, you know, and obviously I didn't do anything, but, I, you know, I stared down a six-year-old that day, right, you know, like, I wanted him to know, like, don't mess with my son, right, and I think once you're a parent, you will understand this that your joy and your pain is so intimately tied up in your kids' joy and pain that when they suffer, you suffer 
two. You know, what's very interesting is the big existential question that many of us demand an answer for is a very good question, is why does God allow evil in the world? Or phrased a different way, why does God allow people to suffer if he's so good? You know, almost every time we teach Alpha, that question comes up at some point. It's a big question. Why does God allow people to suffer? You know what question is very rarely asked and what I think is the harder question? The harder question is, why does God allow himself to suffer? Why does God allow himself to be so affected by humanity? He's God. Why does he allow himself to get to a point? Why does he tie himself to his creation so much so that when they suffer, God weeps? We don't get an answer to why evil exists in the world, but here's what we do know is that God has so bound himself up with his creation that he feels all the consequences of our evil. You know, you know when it says God's heart was deeply troubled, that word troubled comes from the same Hebrew word used to describe the pain of the curse in Genesis 3. The pain when, that Eve feels in childbirth, the pain that Adam is supposed to feel when he works and toils the land, same Hebrew word. You know what this is saying is? God is saying, from that moment on, you're not just going to experience the consequences of your actions, I am. I'm gonna feel pain too. When you cry, I'm gonna cry too. When someone betrays your trust, it's gonna feel like a betrayal to me too. Our pain is God's pain. And so any reaction you have to this story that is negative or uncomfortable or gut-wrenching, know that it's exponentially worse for God. It's exponentially more gut-wrenching for him. You know, when you experience a loss, the weight of that loss is usually tied to your relationship with the person. And we have language for this too. That's why like sometimes we might say something like, my grandmother passed away last week, but we'll say, don't worry, like we weren't that close. As if to signal to the other person, don't worry, this grief isn't that heavy. You and I know that the closer that relationship gets, when it's someone who's really close, a spouse, a family member, a best friend, and betrayal happens, or suffering happens, or loss happens, or death happens, we know that sometimes the pain is absolutely unbearable because of how close that relationship is. And so you can imagine what the pain is like for a God who sat there and created humanity with his own hands, who had his dirt in the ground, who breathed life into our nostrils. How deeply does God feel that pain? There is no earthly relationship that comes close to the relationship God has with us, which means there's no pain like the pain God feels for us. Now, obviously this doesn't answer all the questions around this story, but I hope you're beginning to see that this passage is more than just about a vindictive God who had a bad day and decided to take it out on his people. This is a story about a God who is perfectly just, who must deal with evil, but at the same time perfectly compassionate and merciful, who grieves in the presence of evil, which creates a problem. How do you deal with evil in a way that preserves both? 
God's perfect justice, and God's perfect mercy. And here we read that God does it through a man named Noah. If you look at what it says from verses seven to nine, it says, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And this is interesting when you read this because you're like, wait, so there was a man who was righteous? There was a man who was blameless? I thought you said all of humanity was corrupted. I thought you said every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. So was Noah good? <laughs> so was Noah good? Well, the key word here is the word favor in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor is the same Hebrew word for grace. Meaning what Noah got, Noah didn't deserve. And Noah didn't earn. And if you understand it that way, then everything that comes after it makes so much more sense. Because of grace, Noah was a righteous man. Because of grace, Noah was blameless. Because of grace, he walked faithfully with God. The order is so important. You see, Noah being saved and God offering Noah salvation was not a reward for Noah's performance. Noah was saved because of grace. His whole life was marked by God's grace. And we know this is very contrary to popular belief because the way we teach this story is that Noah was this hero, that he was this great man. He was the one guy who was actually good. You don't have to read very far after this to realize that Noah was not a hero. Right after the flood, right after God saves Noah and his family, you know where we find Noah? He's drunk, naked, in a tent, cursing his own family members. I guarantee you, you will not see that in a Sunday school curriculum. Okay. That's where he was. This is the guy God chose to rebuild humanity with. There is nothing special about Noah except that Noah trusted God and God alone to save him. And we know this because what God asked Noah to do didn't make any sense at all. You see, we read earlier that Noah was a farmer. He was not a carpenter. He probably did not know the first thing about building ships. God says, I want you to build an ark. Interesting. He said, I want you to build an ark because it's actually going to rain. It's going to be more rain than you've ever seen, and the water is going to cover the entire land. They're in a desert. There is nothing about this story that makes sense. He tells a non-carpenter to build a boat because of rain in a desert. And yet when you read this text, there's no, how long is this going to take? Are you sure you want me to do that? I don't know the first thing about building arcs. No. All it says is Noah did everything as God commanded him. Trusting God to save you takes so much faith because God will ask you to do things that don't make any sense to the people around you. If you keep reading the story, for however many years it took Noah to build the ark, everyone is mocking him. Everyone is laughing at him. They're like, why are you living like this? What is this? And this is what following Jesus in 2023 will often feel like for us. 
because God will often ask us to sacrifice. He will often ask us to forgive. He will often ask us to be generous, to give our time, energy, and resources, and people will say, what are you doing? That's such an outdated religion. Why are you doing this? And it's not to say that any of these things merit our salvation. It's not that any of these things are prerequisites for us to be saved. They're just the inevitable fruits of a heart posture that says, I trust you and you alone to save me. My money can't save me. My degrees can't save me. My pedigree can't save me. My looks can't save me. Because at the end of the day, we will all face a flood that will wipe everything away. And the big question for all of us is, who do you trust to save you? Who will you trust? And so God preserves this one family through the flood, and the flood is, if you understand biblical history and theology, the flood is meant to represent a kind of decreation. It's the world reverting back to the formless waters that we saw um, back in Genesis 1, verse 2. And out of these waters, God begins to recreate the world again. And he elevates Noah as a kind of new Adam, giving him the same mandate that he gave the first Adam, to be fruitful and to multiply. And you're going to see this motif over and over and over again in Scripture, where God chooses one person amidst all the wickedness and destruction of humanity through whom his people will be preserved. If you go a little bit further and you go get to the book of Exodus, when a bunch of Israelite babies are thrown into the water to be killed, there's one who gets saved, Moses. He gets put in a basket. You know what's very interesting? You know that word basket? Same Hebrew word as the word ark in Genesis 6. This is where if you are a Bible nerd and you want to like get really in there, it's incredible how these themes come, come alive. Same exact word. Noah is placed in an ark and is saved from the waters of death. Moses is placed in an ark and is saved from the waters of death. In the face of humanity's constant failure, God continues to uphold his covenant through one person. And you realize God is just setting up this larger biblical drama. He's setting up the larger story of scripture that's going to point us to Jesus, the one who would come, who would once and for all, save humanity from themselves and restore everything back to the way it was supposed to be. Everything we learn about God here in Genesis 6 has its climax in the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where God's justice and his mercy meet, where God not only deals with the problem of evil, but also so identifies with our suffering and pain that he willingly lays down his own life as a substitute for our sins. But here's one difference between the cross and the story of Noah's Ark, is that in the flood account, the wicked die and the one is spared. With Jesus, the wicked are spared, and the only truly righteous one who ever lived is overtaken by the waters of death. Unlike Noah, Jesus doesn't escape the flood alive. He's drowned in a sea of destruction that humanity has caused, but in doing so, Jesus now becomes the ark for all of creation where we find our rescue, our salvation, and our hope. 
In Jesus, we find new life and new purpose. In Jesus, we experience life as it was meant to be lived. All we need to do is trust him. And what I think is the most amazing thing about this is that because the Bible tells us that Jesus now lives in us, you know what this means? You and I can now be arcs in a world full of chaos and destruction and injustice. You and I can now be safe spaces for people to experience the hope of the gospel, to know the love of Christ that has no bounds. You and I can be a refuge for the weary. We can offer people a new beginning. You know, I love that today happened to be a baptism Sunday because in the ancient world, water was a symbol of death and destruction. Water was what killed people. And so you talk about water, and you're talking about something very dark. But baptism is this beautiful reminder that in Christ, the same water, which was once a sign of divine judgment, is now a sign of God's unfailing promise, of his mercy, of his kindness, and his love. What a beautiful truth this is. And so my hope and prayer for us is that we would all recommit our lives to Christ today our ark, our creator, and our redeemer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess that we have severely minimized our sin. And for many of us, we don't even realize that at the end of the day, sin is not just about making God angry and warranting punishment. We don't even realize that when we sin, we break your heart. That when we experience what sin does to ourselves, to others in the world, that this grieves you deeply. But God, we thank you that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, sin, death, destruction, chaos, wickedness does not have the final word over our lives. We don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. Because of what you've done, we're forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. And we can now experience life as it was meant to be lived. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for Christ in whom we find our refuge, our strength, and our hope. We pray that you would continue to press this word onto our hearts, that as we look at all the evil and injustice that plagues our world and our lives today, that we would remember that we have a God who not only deals with evil, but has done something about it to vanquish evil once and for all. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're able, I'm going to invite us to stand. Let's respond to this word by singing two songs of praise. Let's worship together.